You're listening to the Alan Gray Podcast. I'm Rory Katiska-Jacobson, one of the portfolio managers at Alan Gray and your host for this episode. We've put this podcast together for financial advisors and investors. With each conversation, we aim to share different perspectives on topical issues and give you a sense of how we look at the world, particularly when we are putting your portfolios together. In this episode, we are joined by Dan Brocklebank from our offshore partner, Orbis. Dan is based in London and heads up Orbis UK. Having invested through multiple cycles, Dan will talk to us about some of the lessons he has learned along the way and whether they still hold in the current global environment. We will also unpack Orbis's recent performance and explore the opportunities that Orbis is finding compelling today. Dan, firstly, welcome back to South Africa. Thanks very much, Rory. It's great to be back here. Somebody reminded me last night that I was last here in November 2019, and that's not an awful long time ago, but a lot's happened since. It feels like the world has changed a lot. <laughs> the the world has certainly changed a fair bit since I was last here. Just, Dan, perhaps for the listener who isn't familiar with Orbis, just who is Orbis and what makes them different? Sure. So Orbis is uh, Alan Gray's offshore partner. Founded in 1989 by Alan Gray and his son, William, we manage equities on a global basis. And uh, more recently, we've started managing some fixed income in a balanced portfolio as well. And really, we take the same investment philosophy that you and your listeners will know from Alan Gray, but apply that to global equities in markets around the world. 1989, you said, and you've been at Orbis for 20 years. I mean, 20 years is an extremely long time. I think some millennials have changed jobs three or four times in that span. So, you know, how do you kind of not only stick to the same industry, but the same firm for that long? Yeah, thanks, Rory. You're making me feel old. I keep getting reminded of that on this trip. But firstly, it's not my first job. It's actually my second job. I trained as an accountant beforehand. But I I was doing that during the dot-com bubble. And I'd always been slightly invested, uh, interested in investing. But during the dot-com bubble, working for an accountancy firm, you could see this sort of crazy stuff going on. And I had this interest, and once the bubble had burst, I wanted, I knew I couldn't be an accountant forever. And when I discovered Orbis and the investment philosophy, to me, it was a bit of a, I know it sounds a cliche, but it was a bit of a light bulb moment, because it was an investment philosophy that could explain how these big bubbles can happen, and also what it takes to be able to invest long-term, not get caught up in those. So the real reason I've stayed for so long is because I just enjoy it. I'm very lucky to find and be able to do something I enjoy. But to stay, I guess, in one firm, it's because it's always been interesting for me. The people in there have always been people I admire and respect. It's always challenged to stay on my A-game by the people I'm surrounded with. And also, you know, my role has also evolved over time. I haven't just done one thing for 20 years. I've been doing different things along the way. So it's just always been interesting. The firm's been client-centric, which which chimes with how I think about things. And But above all, it's being right at the front seat of the investing world. And, and that's interesting to me. I mean, that's really interesting. I guess you're in from accountancy. Did you find Orbis or did Orbis find you? So I went looking for the investment world, but Orbis was very unusual in that it looked for accountants to come and work because Alan always, he was very strong believer in that we've got to build a firm up from people who haven't been in the industry for long periods of time. He wanted people who thought about investing first and foremost from a, a business perspective. As I'm sure you know from the investment philosophy, really what we're trying to do is figure out the value of businesses. And to do that, you need to have some business toolkits. And the accountancy qualification is kind of useful as one of those. So 
I went looking, but all this was also pretty unusual in the fact that it looked for recently qualified chartered accountants because it, it fit this idea that Alan and Will had for, for building out the team long term. Yeah, I guess I mean, there's a big focus here as well on building your own timber, kind of teaching people about how we think about investments and yeah. why we're different. On that note, sorry, I don't want to harp on your 20 years, <laughs> but I mean, what are the big lessons you have learned over those 20 years? Look, I think the big one I read about sort of before I joined, but you're just constantly reminded of it. And I think the big lesson, and the most important lesson I think all investors have to learn is that as humans, we're not designed to be good investors. It's it's a very unnatural thing. And so I think until people truly recognize that our instincts quite probably are pulling us in the opposite direction to what we need to be doing to be good at investing, until people really internalize that and really factor that into how they work, I think it's it's really hard to be successful at investing. So I guess the biggest investment lesson is just a deep appreciation of that. And it's like a constant reminder of how we're pulled into the short term, we're pulled into popular areas of things. It's just part of our inherent survival mechanism as a species. But all of those things are terrible from an investing perspective. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. I guess, you know, if you look at something like engineering, Knowledge is cumulative. Hmm. We kind of compound and we build on successes of the past, lessons from the past. But as you highlight in investing, we seem incapable of learning from the past. Can you just maybe unpack a little bit more about why you think that is? I think there are a number of reasons. As I look back over 20 years, every 20 years or so, you're getting a whole new cohort of people coming into financial markets. And they typically come in in their 20s and their 30s when, let's face it, we're inclined to be a bit arrogant and think we know best. Even though you can read and study from a textbook, it's very hard to really deeply appreciate how your instincts are going to pull you in the wrong way until you've done it a bit. And so you're always getting new people coming into the markets, and there's always a little bit of having to learn the lessons the hard way. And so there's just this sort of constant cycling in of new experience or inexperienced people as kind of the older people as either retire or obviously pass on. So that's, I think, one big factor. The other thing that I think makes this quite kind of powerful is that so periodically, a new technology comes along in some shape or guise. And, and I think when you get a new technology come along at a time when you've got, you haven't had one for a while and you've got a whole load of new investors, that combination is really powerful. Because that's when you get, um, I think what Charlie Munger would call a, a Lollapalooza effect. Those effects sort of compound. And you know the, the inexperienced people kind of see this new technology and say that, well, the old people just don't get it. And, and so they get really excited and carried away. That's when I think you get more than just a cycle, you get a sort of a mania or a bubble. And, you know, you look back over history and you see these come in and they tend to come in when new technologies come along. And I think that's fascinating. The first one I saw for me was very much the dot-com bubble. I had a boss of mine at my old accountancy firm and he was literally day trading stocks while we were meant to be working. This is in an accountancy firm. And I said, whew, didn't feel, didn't feel good to me. He said, Dan, don't worry. I, I know this is not sustainable, but, you know, I've just earned enough from this day trading to pay for my wedding. And I said, oh, that's fantastic, but you should really bank the profits. And he goes, no, don't worry, I'm going to stop trading, but I've got to just pay for the honeymoon first. And that was literally kind of within weeks of the top. And I think he still got married. In fact, I know he still got married, but the wedding plans were, were scaled back a lot from what he originally, originally so had. So were you uninvited from the wedding then? No, I did actually go to the wedding. But I had to keep a pretty low profile at that one, yeah. I mean, yeah, it reminds me of what my dad used to say to me when I was a student. He'd say, I wish I was still young like you and knew everything. <laughs> um, and, yeah. and it seems strange that we struggle to kind of learn from the lessons of the past. Mm-hmm. And we have to kind of repeat the same mistakes and we succumb. Yeah to these human emotions of like fear of missing out. That's right. You mentioned the dot-com bubble. 
What would yeah. you say is like the new, new thing of, of this generation? Just before we get to that, I think it's also important to acknowledge that sometimes new things do come along that are important. So the real challenge with all of this is recognizing that there are sort of new technologies that get people excited, but sometimes change is real. You know, the internet is very real. It has a very real impact on businesses. The difficulty is separating the, the expectations uh, and keeping them realistic at different stages in the cycle. What I think is clearly new, the new mania at the moment, seems to me very much in the in the crypto space. There's been an explosion of technology and ideas and coming out. And I think a lot of it is is very well-founded and probably well-intentioned. Unfortunately, I think there's awful, also an awful lot of bad stuff attached in various places with it. So that's a space which seems to me has grown up and attracted disproportionate amount of interest and hype relative to the, the kind of proven benefits of it. And I, I hope there will be some proven benefits of it, but I'm not quite sure what they are personally. But there's been an awful lot of hype and it just seems a little bit out of whack to me. And maybe if you had to try to contrast that with the dot-com bubble, you know, you mentioned that there was a lot of truth to the underlying technology in the sense that, yes, valuations were at extreme levels in the dot-com bubble and it took a very long time after yeah. that for Microsoft and Amazon to grow into their valuations. But eventually they did, and these have now become kind of these global businesses. Yeah. So, you know, for someone who was going to argue, well, I think, you know, it's just a matter of time for crypto, if you had to contrast those two and say, well, why do you think this is potentially different? I think they may be very similar. We may be seeing a similar pattern here. What I'm worried about at this stage is the scale of the speculation relative to the proven benefits. I'm not smart enough to figure out which bits of the crypto landscape are actually you know, really great technology and great technological innovations. There's nothing in my life that's come along that seems to make my life better or, or more convenient. So I have to wait to be proven. I'm happy to be proven wrong. But nobody said to me, hey, this is going to be fantastic. You can do this with crypto yet. And maybe that'll happen. What I worry about is you've seen the scale of the market cap. And I mean, it's in the trillions. So there's a big amount of money attached to this. And then you're, you are seeing examples of, of fraud. And so people are taking advantage of it. And I think there was an initial idea that um, Bitcoin was digital gold. Okay, so that's an interesting idea, store of value, impartial, etc. That's a really interesting idea. But I mean, I'm in South Africa. You know, if you go to speak to anyone involved in the gold mining industry, you tell them to increase supply. They're like, Whew, that's hard. You know, it's a really, really hard thing to do. But in the crypto space, supply is just exploding everywhere. There are new coins being launched. And so I don't see why you can have a store of wealth if the supply seems to be going up in so many different dimensions and in, in, in so many different unreliable ways. So to me, it's a big puzzle. I'm, I've learned to be skeptical. I'm happy to be proven wrong. Maybe I'm missing something. That's fine. I'm, I, I miss plenty of things along the way. I'm just above all, I think, to be successful investing long term, you want to avoid making big mistakes. And I think there's a lot of potential to make big mistakes by being too aggressive in crypto at the moment. And I guess one of the other challenges is each independent cryptocurrency is finite in, in theory. But in practice, there's an infinite number of cryptocurrencies. And so, like, it's, again, picking the winners is incredibly hard exactly. in a space where there's a really quite excessive exuberance. Yeah. Okay. And, and I mean, are there any other pockets, maybe more on the share market, where you think there's sure. excessive optimism or exuberance that you're seeing? I think it's really important to put it into context because maybe crypto is kind of self-contained and it's, it is a little ecosystem or quite big ecosystem, but maybe it's self-contained in there. But I think it's important just to see it in, in a broader context and you take a step back. And this is where I'm nervous about other asset classes because I don't think it's any particular coincidence that 
this explosion of cryptos happened at a time when monetary conditions have been very, very loose. And the central banks have been pumping and printing money and pumping money into the system. And I think um, if, if you just take a, a sort of 10-year perspective, I think we've had extraordinary conditions. And, and crypto is kind of one symptom of that. Uh, I think the bond market's the obvious one that just stands out as being flat out you know, extreme. You know, we like to think long term. So we have a 700-year history of, of, of bond yields. And you look at today's levels, and they are just startlingly low. That's another one. But I think as that has developed, that sort of infects, if you like, equity valuations, because lower interest rates means that uh, companies that have earnings and cash flow a long way into the future are theoretically more valuable. Until really the start of this year, we've seen a long sort of boom in high growth companies, technology companies in particular, that rationally are, are worth more when interest rates go down. But if interest rates are too low, it also means that their valuations could also be too high. So I, I do think there is a there is an interconnection here, but those um, the big cap growth names technology space will be the ones in the share market that I'd be most worried about. Maybe just talk to one or two of those names that I guess you would say are most extremely valued. Yeah, I mean, look, Tesla's the fun one. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> everyone knows about Tesla. It's like over seventy times earnings, and actually, I love the company. Am I allowed to confess? I actually, drive one of the cars. In the interest of full disclosure, I should also highlight I'm currently short Tesla. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No. So look. As a consumer, I think the cars are fantastic, and I think the company has really raised the game for the industry in terms of electric cars. I think that's probably going to be a good thing long term, although there's some interesting questions about that. I think there's the valuation um, just strikes me as crazy. It's over 70 times earnings at the moment. Those earnings are inflated potentially for various reasons. I think at one point it was trading at like nine times the entire profits of the industry. So that's basically fine as long as the company is a monopoly, but obviously it isn't. And there's competition coming in from electric cars. So I think that's a bubble. And encouragingly, I have to say, there has been good news in the last sort of six to eight months or so. The other sort of link to that was there was a bubble in profitless technology companies. There was were companies which had proven models. And again, I think this comes down to, to human nature because everyone had seen companies like Amazon and also Google and Facebook to a certain extent, but I think particularly Amazon, be enormously successful and generate huge um, commercial success. And people could see it was very valuable. And I think what was really unusual compared to economic history is that Amazon was clearly growing in value. And yet when you looked at its financials, its financial statements, it, it was barely profitable. It, it wasn't really showing a profit. And, and that was for good accounting reasons. And the company was obviously reinvesting in its growth an awful lot. But I think a dangerous misconception crept in that you know all companies that are growing very fast, that aren't showing profits, are therefore very valuable. And so I think investors, the new breed of people chasing these growth companies, kind of gave companies a pass on their reported financials when, I'm sorry to say, at the end of the day, you have to be profitable, you have to generate cash flows. And Amazon's clearly a very valuable company, but I think a lot of people were looking for the next Amazon, and they underweighted the thinking about the true financial health of the opportunity. And I think just got carried away thinking the internet's going to come along. Everyone started valuing companies based on their total addressable market, um, which is akin to 20 years ago when people were valuing companies based on the eyeballs looking at websites and things like that. Because, you know, as we all know, the size of a market doesn't affect the valuation of companies in there. It's how competitive that market is and how much profit each company can earn. So, I mean, the other thing that's also been, I guess, a bit of a freebie, if I can call it that, in this market has been 
all of these companies have been able to use share-based payments to reward their staff. Yeah. And you've had a huge rise in share-based payments and, as a result, a huge rise in the number of shares in issue. Yeah. And so as a shareholder, you've been mass- massively diluted, but there hasn't seemed to be any penalty as yet because, obviously, share prices rise. Your staff are extremely happy. They're able to then take those shares and sell them in the market and crystallize that effective payment. Yeah. And shareholders don't seem to have been upset about the fact that they've been diluted by 10, 20, 30 yeah. percent in terms of their ownership of that company. But if those all change, that could have a big impact on the fundamentals of some of these companies. I think that's well said. And I think we may start to see that in the next year or two. And people's loyalty to companies may be tested when they don't get this extra kicker from their share options being enormously valuable. I mean, the risk, obviously, and as, as stewards of our clients' capital, we have to be very careful of this. But or watch out for this. But you know, the risk is that companies just try to reprice those options to, to keep people happy. So we obviously need to be on the watch out for that sort of behavior happening. But it's a great point. You know, we've spoken a bit about kind of the optimism involved here. And it seems to me that things seem to go through cycles and you get to these points where you get massively excessive overshooting on those cycles. You know, do we have a problem with forecasting, predicting the future? I know J.K. Galbraith said, you know, there's two types of forecasters. There's those who don't know, and there's those who don't know they don't know. You know, so how do you think yeah. about forecasting? How do you employ it at Orbis? I was lucky enough to be mentored by Simon Murray. So Simon was a chief investment officer here at Alan Gray and, and then chairman for many years. He spent about two years in London working with the investment team at Orbis before uh, moving to Australia and setting up Alan Gray Australia. And he used to love this. He used to show all these forecasts that, that had proven to be spectacularly wrong and you know, there are some wonderful ones from recent years as well. Look, I, I think the fundamental reason why as humans were so bad at forecasting is that it's really hard. I mean, economies are really complex. You can, there's so many variables and they're all interconnected. And it's like forecasting the weather. We're quite good a couple of days out because not much changes in a couple of days. But you try forecasting the weather in two, three, four weeks time, and even that close, it's very, very difficult. So it's a really hard thing to do. The real problem for me is given that I think if you look at any track record of forecasting, the real question for me is why we carry on doing it so much. And you, all you have to do is turn the, the news or, or look at the forecast and you see people making forecasts left, right and center. And, and that's the real head scratcher to me. I think that firstly, there's a whole industry in producing forecasts uh, because it kind of makes people sound smart if they sound like they know it. And I think you can, you can sort of trick yourself into thinking that the forecasting is, you're better at than, than average because obviously if you make 10 forecasts over the years, you probably only remember the ones that you were right on and you forget all the other ones because your brain's brilliant at doing that. So, so I think that happens. And then I think when you look back at history, the things that happen are always obvious in hindsight. And you can see a, well, there was a recession in this year and clearly it was caused by that, this, that maybe the housing market did that. And so when, an explanation in hindsight is always easy. So you think, well, a causal things behind that are quite simple. And so therefore, if I look forward, I can see these things happening. Therefore, it's logical to put two and two together. In reality, the, the future is far more uncertain than we like to admit. And I think it's one of our traits as humans. We're really scared by how uncertain the world is if we start thinking about it. And it's like a defense mechanism just to say, well, I'm going to predict this because it's kind of safe and comfortable and it doesn't. I don't have to worry about all the other crazy stuff that could happen. Then the, the next question to me is why we carry on doing it. I'm really bad at playing the piano. I carry on doing it. It annoys my wife, but it only annoys my wife. When people are forecasting and, and then using that to inform their investment decisions, you can cause real damage to your investment portfolio. People trying to get in and out of the market. The most common one is people trying to get in and out of 
the market because they think there's a recession coming around the corner. And if you look at all the studies of people's ability, professional forecasters, their ability to predict um, recessions, it's terrible, objectively terrible. But yeah, I think people try and do it because they want to avoid the big down markets that happen typically around about the time that a recession happens. So the problem with that is that even if you can forecast when the recession's coming, if you want to get out of the market, that maybe you can do that bit. But then you've got to get back into the market at some point in time during the recession, just before the market stops worrying about the recession and starts thinking about the recovery. So even if you can get one of those right, which, by the way, is very, very difficult, you've then got to get the second bit right as well. And doing both of those is, is next to impossible. So people who don't really understand the pitfalls in forecasting will continue to apply it into their investing. And that, that can get really expensive, um, unlike my piano playing. I think worrying about kind of whether, what the market's going to do in any year probably is pointless, fruitless. At the same time, I think as investors, you do have to think about what the future is going to look like because you can't invest just based on the, on the view of a company today. And yeah, this is an absolute conflict. I'm, I'm, I recognize I'm in some ways completely contradicting myself. But um, what I think you can do as an investor is wait for kind of extremes in cycles to emerge. And I think then you can lean into them by taking a different perspective, or you can look out for inflection points when, when things may be changing or people are too pessimistic or too op optimistic. So I don't think of those as forecasting per se, because I'm not trying to say that GDP is going to be this or the market is definitely going to do this. But what you can say is that the market is pricing in a really bad outcome here. And it's probably... The balance of probabilities that things are going to turn out better than that. And so that's how I think you, you can think about the future and apply it to your investing. So I guess what you're trying to say, if I understand you correctly, is you don't know what the trajectory of the cycle is and you don't know when it's going to turn, but you can have a great degree of confidence as to where you are in the cycle. And you can say, well, you know, as things stand today, they're extremely depressed. That's right. And there's a lot of negative sentiment. Or as things stand today... It's extremely buoyant and there's a lot of excessive optimism. Basically, yes. But I don't think you can – you can't be certain where you are in the cycle. But I think what you can know is when you're at an extreme. And I think figuring out when you're at an extremes of sentiment or, or, or growth or interest rates or things like that, that can be helpful because it can help inform your view. So we've spoken a little bit about you know, one or two points where we think there's excessive optimism, where we think it's at an extreme, yeah. some of these tech stocks. If we flip it, you know, like where's Orbis as a result finding opportunity – where do you think it's gone? The pendulum has swung completely in the opposite direction. So it's funny, looking back over the last 20 years and yeah, do that, we don't make a big song and dance about anniversaries or this, but you can't help look back and think of it. And one of the episodes that it was painful looking back at it because yeah, it was a sin of omission. We didn't invest in this. But one of the things I spent a bit of time on was looking at an industry I researched in 2003. And I was out in Dallas at the start of the year and we were visiting a company that made um, rail cars, so like the tanks that get pulled behind trains, freight trains. And the CEO at that time said, yeah, interestingly enough, our customers seem to be getting a lot better organized. And that was an interesting one at the time because those companies, the share prices were very lowly valued. People thought that railroad companies at the time were, you couldn't invest in them with any credibility because they were, they were so poorly managed. And we didn't actually invest in them, which was the painful bit, um, because he, his observation was right. They'd all got themselves organized and they had started to put prices up because they were no longer chasing volume growth and trying to defend market share. 
And they took the extra profits and cash flow that that was generating and started giving that back to shareholders through dividends, but also through buy share buybacks. And they, the real advantage they had was because sentiment was so depressed, because they'd had 30 years of being a shambles as an industry. Sentiment was so depressed, all of that, those buybacks were incredibly accretive because they were buying shares back at a very low price. And that industry went on the, an index of railroad stocks from 2003 to today, got outperformed the US market, not just the world index, outperformed the, the US market by about five times. Oh, wow. So you know, it was it, just this extraordinary development in the stocks. And it's painful because we didn't invest in them. And we, we were very close. But a couple of lessons from it, I think, are really relevant today. And the first is that you can have that level of outperformance from an industry that is incredibly capital intensive. And I mention that because in the last few years with the technology companies and the high growth companies, the so-called kind of high quality franchise stocks doing so well in the market, a bit of a mantra seems to have grown up. And I don't know if you've heard it here, but it's certainly been echoed around London and, and other markets that you know, all you need to do to be successful as investing is earn high quality companies that earn high returns on capital and are capital light. And so everyone's kind of running around trying to be that sort of manager and find those companies. And yet the most capital intensive industry out there has outperformed the US market five times over the last 20 years. To me, it reminds me that you've got to be very wary of people who are too dogmatic about the types of companies that they own or are willing to invest in. And so if you hear of managers saying, I only buy this type of company, I'm like, I would be wary um, because average quality companies can be great investments and great quality companies can also be terrible investments if you pay too much for, the, for them in the future. So that's a bit of a long-winded story, but it's it's been interesting looking at that because I see parallels to what was happening in the rails in 2003 with what's happening in the energy industry today globally. And you know, this is something that's very near and dear to, to close to our thoughts in Europe at the moment with everything that's going on with the with the prices. But here you've got an industry which for the last five or 10 years has basically been derided. You know, climate change is real. We've got to come up with a solution to our dependency on fossil fuels, but we can't do that overnight. The agenda, the anti-fossil fuel agenda has been very, very strong. So here's an industry that's basically been, been hounded. It's also suffered from some real demand setbacks in COVID. Demand came down. And so not unreasonably, those companies have gone, we've got to cut back our reinvestment. It doesn't make any sense to reinvest. And you can see the investment in new supply in the oils. If you look at the, the investment, it's absolutely collapsed to levels which are unthinkably low relative to past cycles. And these are projects, bear in mind, they take a long time to get going again. So the investment has collapsed. And probably just as importantly as that, there's been a real mindset shift in the boardrooms of these companies. They're not talking 10, 15 years ago when I was looking at the sector, everyone was chasing growth. They were trying to find the hot new basin and grow supply because that's what investors were, were saying that they wanted. Now investors are saying, we don't want, we don't want, we don't, don't grow. We don't know what's going to, the market's going to be like in 10 years time. The management teams are going, well, hang on a second, let's focus on profitability and let's focus on returning the, the capital that we generate back to shareholders. And just as with the rails, 20 years ago, you're starting from a point of incredibly low valuations. You get free cash flow yields in the energy space, double digit easily, you know, 15 and 20% free cash flow yields in certain places. Because of commodity prices generally being pretty high now, we're seeing an absolute you know, surge in the free cash flow that they're generating 
that can be reallocated to shareholders. So, so there's a real opportunity here for the industry to go through a cycle which, even though they're transitioning, even they're transitioning away and, and in 30 years, production's got to be lower, but even though that's happening, it could still be very, very good for shareholders. And in some ways, it also reminds me of the tobacco companies. Volumes have gone down over 20, 30 years, as we all want them to, but there's still been a great place for shareholders to be because that capital has been coming back to shareholders at cheap valuations. So I see that as something that's really interesting at the moment. Maybe just a, a related point, I guess. So you've had an industry that's been starved of capital. There's been a, a huge drive to divest or from fossil fuel companies and a huge drive globally to kind of grow our renewables capacity and capability. But rightly or wrongly, primary energy demand globally has stayed kind of relatively constant or actually grown. And as it stands today, renewables are only 10, 11, 12 percent of the total energy mix. So I understand all of that. But I mean, to what degree do you think the current prices we're seeing in fossil fuels is caused by or exacerbated by what's happening with, with Russia and Ukraine? Great question. I think that the horrific events in Ukraine are part of the problem, but definitely not the fundamental cause here. It's been another kind of problem for the industry to deal with. But this has been a problem that's been a long, long time in the making. For an industry where the cycle's so long, we look at trailing five-year average capex. And that number is is way, way down. It's not just a 2022 problem. I think the events of this year make it even harder to sort that problem out. It's worth just being saying a couple of points on demand because, yeah, demand may come down. It hasn't yet. But it's worth also remembering that large parts of China are still effectively under lockdown. There's a lot of pent-up demand as well today that that isn't showing up in the demand statistics because lots of Chinese people can't travel for various reasons. So demand could work both ways from from here, for sure. Another question just on how energy kind of, it's, it's so integrated in the global economy. I guess where it is slightly different to rail yeah. is that with energy prices globally spiking as they have, electricity bills in parts of Europe have gone you know, up 30, 40, 50%. I think producer price inflation in Germany, I saw was at 38%. Uh, so how do you think about, assuming that you stay high for all the reasons you've given, yeah. what impact does that have on, on the general economy? And is there a feedback loop where it causes demand destruction or a, you know, a recession? So I think all of those are possible. And I'm kind of reminded a bit about what we said about forecasting a few minutes back in that the energy space in particular is so interrelated, interconnected, multiple variables and lots of different resolution mechanisms for all of these challenges that and I think it is essentially impossible to predict what will happen. I think the things we can say for sure is that the physical market is very, very tight. There is not much spare capacity out there at the moment. If there is a recession uh, that reduces demand, yes, that will create some headroom, some breathing room in that supply. But the challenge with with energy, which is unlike with rails, if you build a railroad, that railroad will still be there next year and the year after and the year after. You might need to do a bit of maintenance. Oil and gas wells, they deplete. And so every year you're losing 5 6% of your productive capacity in the oil space. And that needs to be replaced. So there is a bit of a treadmill effect that, that happens as well. So There's a huge upfront investment, but you also have to reinvest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, you, okay, effort. you definitely have to reinvest. We've spoken quite a bit about this, but just one of the other challenges I really struggle with, um, and it's not unique to Orbis, the same at Alan Gray as well, is if you're an active manager, 
to beat the market, you have to be different. Yeah. That's the first thing you have to do. You, it doesn't help if you buy all the same shares as everyone else, then you're guaranteed on par performance with everyone else. But the challenge is you have to be different, but you also have to be right. Yeah. It doesn't help if you're different and wrong. Yeah. So you know, And that can be obviously very uncomfortable at points in the cycle where it looks like you're wrong and some of your clients are, are criticizing you or you've been criticized in the press. Again, it comes down to why investing is hard. You know, it, it's, we've kind of been through one of these periods recently. We, we've been different and we've looked wrong. We haven't owned the big cap tech stocks anywhere near the, the weighting that with hindsight I wish we had done. Time will tell whether that was the right decision or not because th there's clearly a bit of a shakeout happening at the moment. We're always guided by valuations fundamentally. Um, that's number one. And as you say, looking for areas of the market which are unpopular in a way of, as our way of sourcing cheap names. Over the last five years, we've generally been kind of underweight the mega cap names. It's very hard to be overweight those, but we've been kind of been underweight the mega cap names, been overweight, so overweight small and mid cap names or medium cap names, value names as always, we have a bit of a tilt in that direction and emerging markets and all of those three areas have lagged the market. I think what's really been unusual recently is how the market's been driven by a very increasingly narrow group of stocks, the, the mega cap and the, and the tech names. And that's not normally a healthy sign. So yeah, it's been it has been uncomfortable. We almost certainly did miss some. I'm sure we we have made some mistakes. But as I look at what's started to happen this year, I think there is a. It's, it's hard to describe 2022 as good news because everything's down a lot in absolute terms. But I think if you look at what's happening in the market, there seems to be a bit of a rotation going on, and it seems to be a rotation away from some of the hype areas towards the cheaper stocks. And we've managed to protect the downside um, to, a, to a reasonable degree so far this year. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to develop a, generate a positive return because overall markets have been so weak. But we have gone down by less than the market. And that does seem to be because it's the cheaper stocks that are doing better. The, the names that have been difficult to hold for a while have, have started to outperform. So I think in the short term, it's encouraging to see how that market is starting to rotate. And also just when we look at the market, another thing we can measure is how attractive the opportunity set looks. And we look at we look at something called the valuation spreads, basically the valuation difference between the more expensive stocks and the cheap stocks. When that valuation difference is getting wider, that's normally a really tough environment for us. But when it narrows, that's normally a great environment for us. And, and what we can see at the moment, and the nice thing about that is that it's a sort of objective measure. It's produced by a quant team. And so you can kind of just look at the chart and it's it's very black and white. And even with the kind of movement year to date, that opportunity set still looks wide uh, on this chart, still looks like that there's a big valuation gap for us to exploit um, based on our investment approach. So I'm cautiously optimistic. And I think it probably comes down to the tectonic plates starting to shift a little bit around inflation and interest rates. And if that continues, that should be good for us. So, I mean, I, I guess in layman's terms, yes. it sounds like you're saying you think the shares that you own are significantly cheaper than many other shares in the market. I think that's, yes, that's definitely true. You can see that. And I guess we've spoken a lot about forecasting and how incredibly difficult it is. So if you look at the makeup of those shares, are they positioned for any particular macro outcome or... You know, have you built in some kind of view on whether you think inflation in the global environment is transitory or persistent? As you know, we don't build the portfolio from a top-down perspective. We look for the, the companies that we think are most attractive. And then we kind of look at what patterns 
they're showing or what picture they are painting in terms of where we see the opportunity set. And I mean, there are there are a number of sort of buckets of opportunity at the moment, I think about it. And first is we kind of have a, a deep value idiosyncratic bucket. And I think these are trading at like nine times earnings compared to the world index at 20 times. And it's, it's, they are idiosyncratic. I mean, there's no, there's no pattern to them. They're all, they all have their own unique reasons for, for being cheap. But we basically think they're good quality companies where the market's just way too pessimistic about them. And I think when, you, when you're owning companies that are on nine, 10 times earnings and the market's 18, you know, that's a great place to be because you know, things don't have to go very well for those companies for them to do, for them to do well. They just, because if they stop getting worse, those, those will do really well. So that'd be bucket number one. So bucket number two is, is a group we call the quality cyclicals. And these are names, they probably trade about 13 times earnings again compared to the market. And those are companies where we really like the franchise. There's GXO, XPO, they're kind of logistics businesses. There's a couple of payments companies in there. And we like those, the, the competitive strengths of those businesses we think are, are fantastic. And we think they'll do really well over the long term. But because of the nature of the industry that they're in, in the short term, if there is a recession, and there's good reasons why there might be, but if there is a recession, those companies will probably suffer a bit in the short term. But quite often what you see is the best companies in cyclical industries can really exploit recessions and they can actually come out a lot stronger. So while the market's getting very pessimistic about these and trying to guess whether or not there'll be a recession, um, we're kind of using the opportunity just to sort of add to those positions very gradually. And if the market really freaks out because uh, there's a recession, then we can, we can, we can build those positions a, a bit more. The third bucket would be the, everything around the energy and the energy infrastructure names where they're, again, single digit PE multiples. What, just to be clear, what I mean by a PE multiple is it's the, it's the price to earnings multiple. So you take the share price divided by the uh, profits per share that, it's, uh, that the company is making. And generally speaking, a low PE multiple uh, suggests that the company is cheap and a high PE multiple uh, is, is normally expensive. But it can be a bit more complicated than that. Depends a little. You might want to adjust the PE multiples to normalize for commodity prices a bit. Um, but, but they're very, very cheap because either people are saying the industry is just not going to exist beyond five years and, and, and we think that's, that's unrealistic. Or it's because, again, people are saying there's going to be a recession, demand's going to go down, and that'll be bad for them because that's what happened last time around. And I think if that's the, what's driving investors, people are fundamentally missing how tight the supply is in the industry there. And I think these industries could do well even if there is a recession. We've spoken a fair bit about the potential for a recession. Is it fair to say, you know, peak uncertainty, peak pessimism is also peak excitement at the investment team at Alan Graham Orbis because that's when valuations are most depressed? Yeah, look, you never know if you're at peak pessimism until, <laughs> until, until you're a bit past it. But certainly, look, I'm excited looking at it. Um, I, I think opportunities are there, certainly from a relative valuation. I mean, it's, the gaps are huge. Markets overall are looking better uh, value from a, from a headline multiples perspective. But it's really important just to, just to caveat that by saying what we haven't seen is we haven't seen earnings estimates come down across the market. And normally you see the market panics, earnings estimates come down, and then the, the shares take another leg down. So if you just apply a playbook for what happened, I, you could see another leg down easily. So I don't know what's going to happen in the short term. I I'm definitely would not recommend anyone try and be too cute about timing that. 
but certainly there are interesting opportunities out there. And the best approach is always for people who are looking to invest just to invest regularly and put dollar cost average or rand cost average into their investments over time and not try and not try and time through this. Dan, I think that's a great note to leave our conversation on. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure and um, thanks for having me. Thank you to Dan Brocklebank from our offshore partner, Orbis, for joining me. And thank you for listening to this episode. We kicked off the conversation by reflecting on some of the lessons Dan has learned about investing and how they can be applied to the current environment. We also looked at what may lie ahead and the opportunities Orbis is finding attractive in the current global opportunity set. We always welcome your feedback, suggestions, and questions. So please drop us an email on info at alangray.co.za if you would like to share your perspectives. Finally, please remember that Alan Gray is an authorized financial services provider. To view the terms and conditions, explore the latest investment insights, and to find out more about our product offering, please visit alangray.co.za. Until next time, I'm Rory Katiska-Jacobson from Alan Gray. This podcast was produced by Volume. Thank you for listening.